Well, welcome. It's good to see you. I just want to welcome you here. If it's your first time here, if you're a guest here this morning, it's a, a very big welcome to you, but it's welcome to us all. My name's Colin, if you don't know quite who I am. Before I start, we've been going through a series on called Teach Us to Pray on the Psalms. It's been excellent, a really excellent series. And um, we've been recommending the whole way through about this book, this wonderful book by Tim and his wife, Kathy uh, Keller, called My Rock and My Refuge. And we bought a number of them. It's got all the Psalms in there, some very good devotional stuff in there for you to go through. And um, we bought a load in the previous few weeks and they've sold out. So we've got a load more. I just want to tell you that at the end of the meeting, you can go to the back and one of the host team can help you to get one. I really recommend getting hold of one of those. If you can hear my voice, sorry, woe is me. I'm not feeling very, very well. So I do apologise. Thank you. Some sympathy. I haven't had a lot of that, so I really do appreciate it. So I hope my voice can hold out. So we've been going through this really great series, Teach Us to Pray. And we know we should pray, but it's difficult at times. It's hard. But here in the middle of the Bible, we've got this wonderful God-given resource, these Psalms, there's 150 of them to help us, to, to teach us to pray. You know, um, in, in my life, in my prayer life, as I've been going through the Psalms, they've been really helping to shape my desires, what I should be praying about, what I should be thinking about. You know, often, if I'm honest, my prayer life can be very me-centered. I can be praying about my needs. I've got a cold, Lord, this morning. But actually, this Psalm that we're going to be looking at today is Psalm 126. And it's, it's full of Christ. It's full of Jesus. And it's key question, it's deepest question, is what is our desire deep down? What, is our, what are we dreaming for? What are we longing for? You see, Psalm 126, really this was Jesus' prayer life. If you want to know how he, what he was praying or how, it is, how he was praying, what he was desiring, what he was living for, then we want to read this psalm. And he wants us to pray like this too. He wants to shape our desires to these things that he was praying for. This psalm, Psalm 126, is one of the, what's called the Psalm of the Ascents, which is from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. Sort of a gradual song, gradual songs leading up towards God, helping people along in their journey in life. Not really 100% sure who wrote them, but we're pretty sure that most of them were written from the time the Israelites had been in a, a captivity for 70 years. And actually they'd come out, a number of them had come out, and they'd come going back to their homeland. And it was difficult. They were returning. They were pilgrims. They were returning toward God and away from where they had actually been for 70 years alone. Through many difficulties and hardships. Pilgrims, pilgrimage, it's a very big biblical theme. God's people have always gone from what they know, the comfortable and the secure, and he's led them out into seeming uncertainty. They've always been a people of the promise. God's leading and by faith our trusting and going. You can read Hebrews 11 to get a good idea of this. It's a great chapter on what faith looks like, what real faith in the real world looks like. He really helps wean us off of superficial Christianity. Right at the very beginning of the Bible, in Genesis, we've got Abraham, or Abraham at the time. 
And God calls him and chooses him and calls him and takes him out from Ur, this city, sends him into the wilderness with a promise, intense. And you see, Ur, we can kind of read that and go, well, Ur, is, you know, it's, old, it's an old ancient city. You know, it's probably, you know, it wasn't much different from the wilderness. But historically, that's not true. Because Ur was actually a very uh, civilised city. It was full of two-storey buildings, full of sewage works and abundant water and, and shelter and comfort. And so Abraham was called by God. He heard his voice. He was given the promise. And he went out into the wilderness in tents. You know, I, I love tents. We go on a two-week holiday as a family every year. But that's about enough for me. All right, Abraham went. So pilgrims, people of the promise, going, being sent. There's an uncertainty in God's leading. It's not all clear. It's not all marked out like Google Maps. It's uncertain. I, I, I'll be honest, I really don't like uncertainty. <laughs> you know, you take my birthday for example, my, my birthday for an example, you know, Hannah, my wife, she wants to surprise me. And I'm like, no, seriously, I know what I would like. Don't surprise me. There's this specific book. I tell you what, I'll just buy the book. You can wrap it up if you really want. I can give it to you. Don't surprise me for the evening. I don't want to go anywhere. I just want steak and chips. That's it. I tell you what, I'll cook it. I'll buy it and cook it. Don't worry about it. Just sit down. I don't really like uncertainty. I like to be clear. I want to know what the plan is and what we're going to be doing. Where are we going to be going? I've come to love calendars and to-do lists and I spend way too much time in my life planning things. It's ridiculous. I've had the misfortune even recently, and I don't like this, but I was referred to as cautious Colin. I don't like that at all. But sadly, that's probably become a little bit true. James mocks me lovingly because he's a really good guy because in my back pocket, wherever I go, I carry around a little blue book where I can write everything down. Every T can be crossed, every I dotted. I need a plan. I like certainty. But the mark of the true people of God is following God by faith into what seems to be uncertainty. We don't know every detail, how it's all going to work out. God's revealing this to me big time at the moment. We need to hear God's voice and then go. Not make a load of plans and go and then kind of bring God's voice into it. Hear God's voice. So we're going to read Psalm 126 today and we're going to go through it and hopefully understand it a little bit more. And then we're going to pray it together. And we're going to let it shape our prayers and our desires. If you've got your Bibles with me, please turn to 126, Psalm 126. So when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. And then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. And then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. And then the Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Verse 1, when the, the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. They were looking back here. Had they come out of captivity? They were looking back. They were acknowledging the hand of God in their life, his sovereignty and his leading, that he alone was their deliverer. 
This is a, a but God moment in their lives of intervening. But God, not them, not chance. And you see, we try to steal God's glory whenever we can. It's like this natural default of sin. You know, we get healed, but it's because I'm taking medication. I've got the doctors. I've got this. Whatever it may be, we do. We try and see our own hand in stuff. But here we see these guys, these Israelites, they're acknowledging his mighty hand in their lives, his sovereign doing, that he delivers his people. Praise God. He's the deliverer. It's one of his names. But God... That's another one. There's so many but God moments in, in, the, in the Bible. You go, but God broke in. But God did this. But God did that. I, in my mind, that's, a, that's another name of God. And as they're looking back, there's this kind of celebration. It's too good to be true. They'd dreamt of this day. They'd been told it was going to happen. In Jeremiah, Jeremiah 20, 29, they're told. They're living with it. But 70 years is a lifetime, isn't it? And this is where you've, you've been born, perhaps, in this, in this land, in this captivity, far from the place God has given you. And you've had, maybe you've, you've grown up, you've got married, you've had kids, maybe those kids have got, had their own kids. Maybe you've, you've worked your full life, you, you've done your whole thing somewhere completely separate. And somehow some of these guys were holding on to this promise from God of return. And it was passed on from generation to generation. I imagine the parents telling their kids at their breakfast table all about this place, the amazing place they used to live. This place that got home that God had given them. You know, the good old days that always seemed so good. They kind of take on this dreamlike status, whether it was real or not. And they're full of joy here. They've now seen that God all along had a plan while they were in captivity. That he is the promise keeper. That it makes them delirious with joy. It's not this fleeting happiness, but it's this deep down ecstatic joy. Wow. Wow, they're saying God has done it. You've got to see that the captivity that they were in wasn't actually a, a brutal kind of enslavement. You might imagine that to be the case. Now this Babylonian king that had taken them, he was quite a forward-thinking, progressive kind of tyrant. He was like, yeah, I do want to dominate the world. I do want all the populations of the world to love and worship me alone. But when you rip people from their homes and when you brutalize their lives, they don't actually love you. You get the power, but it's because of fear. So he thinks, well, I'm, I will take them by force because they're probably not going to come quietly. But I'm going to give them a good life. I'm going to make them really comfortable, secure. And then slowly... But surely, they're going to slide toward our culture. And they're going to forget their past, and they're going to forget their God. And they're going to first start to like, and then they're going to start to love their new home and their culture. And then they're going to love and worship me. He's a pretty clever guy, really, as tyrants go. You know, most of them just aren't that clever. They just think the power of trip thing gets them a little bit impatient. We're just going to make you love me. doesn't work. So hats off to him, really. Because sadly, over the 70 years, actually, it had worked pretty well. The Israelites had slid. It's a really easy thing. One step leads to another. 
A really silly illustration is that, you know, I like to get up quite early to worship God, to read my Bible. But my kids like to get up really early too. So the only way I can do it is to get up earlier than them. So really hard work. So I kind of, over the years, have really started to like my coffee. And I like to start the day with a big, strong coffee and then pretty much consistently go through the day with the coffee. I get the taste and it just kind of starts happening. Recently, I felt, no, I'm going to try and reduce that. And the only way to reduce that is to stop that very, very first coffee hit in the morning. So, I mean, it's a hard life, isn't it? It's really hard. I, I basically drink a cup of tea instead of a coffee. But what happens is it makes me not get the taste that doesn't make me slide through the rest of the day. I just something about it. But these guys in captivity, they had slid. They got the taste. But there was this small number who held on, this remnant that was held, holding on to the promise. You know, over 70 years, they probably got laughed at. They probably were persecuted. You know, they're the crazies. They're holding on for something we don't even need anymore because we've got everything that we need now. We're comfortable. How dangerous it is to slide into the culture. But how easy. We have a fairly comfortable and fairly secure culture today. And it's easy for us to blend in, to look no different from anyone else around us. To live for the same thing as everyone else. What are our dreams and our desires? Deep down, houses and careers and they're not bad things. I'm not knocking them. I'm just reflecting. What are we living for? This is what this psalm wants to do to us. It wants to shape our desires Godward. To long for the things that he longs for, not for what our culture does. You want to know how to hold on and be a part of the culture and make a really big impact but still live radically for God and you just read the life of Daniel in the Old Testament I mean I haven't got the time I wish I did because I have, he fascinates me I, I love that book I love reading about him this is guy he's part of the captivity he's taken as a youth which is a really formation forming type of uh, moment in your life in, in the, your youth and he's given this time with this progressive tyrant is basically getting them to, to learn all of the wisdom of the day the many gods the, the religions the science all the stuff and he, he learns it all and he makes a massive impact into his culture and yet he lives radically for God I'm not going to go into it all but, but basically his secret weapons are here he, he reads the Bible it says here that he, he, was not, he was looking at the, the promise to come, that they were going to leave this place in Jeremiah the prophet. And he says he read that, he longed for it, he prayed for it, and it shaped his desire. That was, that was his secret weapons, basically. The word of God shapes us, but we have to be in it. We have to pray it. And as we do, we, we learn how to be in the world, but not of the world. To stand out and to live differently. For us, there's a lot of reminders of this in worship. We need to look back. It's like a dream. I was lost. I was far from God. I had no way out. It wasn't because of my works. It's too good to be true. He has delivered me. It's God's lavish grace on our lives. His unconditional love poured out for us. His work, he's done it. There's no condemnation in our lives when we know Jesus. There's nothing that can separate us from his great love. He's done it. And I can rest in the work on, his work on my behalf. I can see his sovereignty in my life all the way through. 
He delivered me and he keeps delivering me and he will deliver me. And he will, the promise to come is he will deliver us from the last enemy, death. This is like a dream and I want to celebrate it. I want to worship him. He is leading us as a people. He has a plan for us, new community. He has a, a plan to deliver us and to bless us. He is in control. He is building his church and he has all the authority. Let's look back at our salvation stories regularly. It's not our doing. It's not our work. It's his. If you need delivering from shame or guilt, he can deliver this morning. We can pray. If you don't know him, it's a gospel offer offer this morning. He can give breakthrough if you're suffering. He's the deliverer. His sovereignty should fill us with with celebration and joy. Praise God. Psalm 115 says, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. Verse two says, then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. And then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. This is out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Our hearts are filled with this knowledge of the sovereignty of God and the grace of God. And it causes joy and laughter, even in difficulty. The joy of the Lord is our strength. He is in charge. He has done it. His authority, his sovereignty. And he is a happy God, full of joy. He knows the end of the story. And in his joy, we find strength and peace and acceptance and love. He's in charge and he has a purpose. It causes laughter and singing. What good gifts they are. I've already told you before that I'm not a very good singer. You can probably tell that already. My wife tells me to stop often. My daughter now does as well. It's just not, I'm just not very good. But when I'm happy, I like to sing. It just overflows. It can be very embarrassing at times. It's not that life is always perfect, but safe in the knowledge of God's sovereignty and his leading, we can laugh and we can know a joy that's not superficial. We're blessed to be a blessing. Hannah said that last week. It's not just for us alone. When, when we're saved, why don't we just go to heaven straight away? Wouldn't it just be a little bit easier for us? The apostle Paul, he kind of wrestles with this question a bit as well. He says in Philippians 1, 21, he says, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I, shall not, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to part to be to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for you on your account. We're witnesses. That's what we're called to be. Witnesses. What does it mean to be a witness? Not knowing, knowing loads of things, having some kind of theological degree so we can answer the questions. Actually, it's having a new heart and new affections and desires as we become pilgrims in this life among the nations. Right where we're at. We mustn't live for the values of this culture, even though they scream at us. It's desires and it's hopes. It's really hard. This is why these psalms of ascents, they're psalms of gradual kind of leading upwards. You know, recently me and my family were went to Cascades. It's this swimming pool. It's got these amazing flumes. You have to get to the flumes. You have to go up these stairs and it's long queue and you're waiting as you go up and up and up. And you get on the slide, bang, you're gone. Brilliant fun, great fun. You're down at the bottom. And, and that's great. It's fleeting though. 
as we were walking up the stairs, that sort of occurred to me that that's where I'm laughing and joking with my children. We're talking about what's to come. We're waiting. And what's to come? This is going to be great. And we're building anticipation. And that joy lasted longer than actually the moment on the slide. Verse 3 says, The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. As they see it, the the nations, as they see it in in our lives, people turn and say with us, the Lord has done great things for us. Not just for them, but for now for us. That's what it's saying here. Because salvation through the witness of God's people makes people glad. Firstly, I think this is referring here to the nation that they've just come out of. Because around them, they would have, this nation would have seen them. They'd seen the comfort that they had, the 70 years in there. And then they've come out of that. And they would have been the ones who were asking the questions, why would you leave? Why would you leave this place for that? That wilderness? Why would you go from all this comfort and all this security that you have here? Why would you not live our way? The abundance of food. Why would you go and endure hardship? Why would you live that way? And they wouldn't have understood it, this nation. They looked only to, to what they saw immediately before them. But these pilgrims, as they left, they were looking to what they couldn't see, faith. The nations looked to the joy that was set before their very eyes, not the everlasting joy to come. How we live matters. What we desire deep down shapes our lives. What we look for for our joy and our security and our affirmation and our peace shapes every part of our lives. Do we stand out? When, when others see our lives making choices that might be really, really tough, but putting God first, that will look differently for each of us. It could be how we view our time or our money or our families or our possessions or holidays, whatever it may be. These are what the people around us see in our lives. Where we are standing, where are we standing out as a statement of faith in God's word? Do we long for seeing salvation? More worshippers, not numbers on a Sunday morning, but worshippers standing together with us, giving glory to our God. God longs to bring lost people home to him. Broken people, people living for things that won't and don't satisfy them. He longs to give rest to the weary. Jesus longs for the great praise of the Father that's going to happen on that great day coming. As we're filled with passion for God, it shapes our lives and we live as witnesses to him. We point to him. It kind of bubbles over in our lives with joy and peace and security, overflows to the nations or our neighbours around us. Let's believe him for salvation. His glorious deliverance in the gospel. Do we live for this? Again, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1.16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, to all. And this comes, this confidence, this assurance comes as we immerse ourselves in the word and we let it shape our very lives. Verse 4 says, Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. This is a prayer and a promise here. It's a very different section, actually, to the the one before, the looking back of verses one to three. This is a prayer and a plea to God. Though they are coming home to the dream, it's not what they imagined. 
because it was full of hardships and challenge, full of pain and suffering, actually, because they came to destroyed cities, rubble. The Negev was a very harsh place. There was an eking out of an existence there. There was barrenness. There was wilderness. There was fields full of weeds and bushes, wild animals, new enemies living there. <clears throat> it wasn't abundant with food and water and shelter like they, where they had just come out of. It was hard and grim. They had to fight doubt that they were actually going the right way. Doubts don't exclude us from being the part of the people of God. Doubts are normal. Hence the Psalms of Ascent leading us, reminding us, taking us toward God even when it's hard. We can be tempted to look back, think it was easier when, and the reality of our lives can throw us off course in our faith. We get saved and be on a high. It's all good. Everything I ask for seems to happen. Or we've been around a bit longer and we think, well, it should be abundant joy. There should be this abundant joy, this freedom from these past issues that I had. Great relationships, full of confidence as I talk to others. There's no fears or anxieties anymore. That's what it should have. But the Israelites, they were not truly home. Because the physical land was not it. And we, we don't live an all high, carefree spirituality. It's lost touch with earth. John Piper says one of the best responses to past grace is seeking future grace. In other words, verses one to three, past grace, seeking future grace, verse four, five and six. He will do as he promises. Whatever we see around us, in our own lives, in the, the brokenness of the nation around us, we will see streams in the wilderness. Revival. Now and local and a global revival when Jesus returns again. We sang about that this morning. Come Lord. Jesus is coming. Is this our desire? Is it our prayer? Do we long for the partial revivals in Sidcup and in South East London and in the UK? And do we long for the final revival, that glorious day that's coming when he returns? I want to be happy in God. And fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. As I'm looking back at his finished work, as I'm looking at him in the present with us, and it's a gazing on his future return, completion of this great work that he's done. Long for it. The, the permanent coming home where all of our deepest satisfactions of our hearts will be met as we glorify God. Where every tribe and tongue will gather at his throne reunited, reunited together. He will restore. It's a promise. The intensity of verses four, verse 4's prayer now gives way to this assurance and confidence in God. It says in verse 5, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. Despite what we see, understanding, the understanding of the partial homecoming now, we wait and we long for Jesus' return. But in the waiting, we don't sit idle. Feet up in a hammock, nice beach. Charles would be a fine thing. Nice and comfy. There's stuff for us to do. I've already talked about us as witnesses but he has specific things for each of us to do. We, all of us, no matter what we might think of ourselves, have a part to play in his story. 
That's, that's amazing to me. He wants to use me with all my faults and insecurities and need for planning and certainty to be part of his story. Wow. This is kind of an exaltation, a, a challenge to us to be patient in doing good in reference to the hope of the future. The restoration of the church is not yet complete. So this is the time to sow gospel seeds. The pilgrims, as they came back, they were were to keep going, looking to the promise, even in the difficulty that they were currently facing, because one was coming. Their pilgrimage was because of faith in the promised Messiah, who would one day come, take away their tears, and deliver them from their eternal enemies. This is the mark of all the true people of God throughout all of history. It's a a people of the promise, faith-filled. The description of the land here is very, and the sowing and the harvest takes us again right back to the the beginning in Genesis. It's not a throwaway image, actually, because in the fall of man, it, it, uh, it caused God to pronounce a curse upon the whole of his creation, including the land. But in the curse, right at the beginning, there's contained the first promise of one to come who would finally overcome. I'm not going to go there right now, but it's in Genesis 3.14. And as generation upon generation came, just as they did in the captivity, generation upon generation passing down, just as we do now, two families emerged. Those who held on in faith to the promise, despite what they saw around them, And those who turn to make their own way. As you come to Genesis 5, you see one of these faith-filled descendants, this remnant, this pilgrim, a guy called Lamech. He's prophetically naming his son Noah, which means relief or rest. It says this in verse 5, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief, or Noah, rest from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Noah had this big part to play in the story, just like us. It's quite a good story. But Lamech was not saying it about the physical Noah. He was pointing to the promised one to come who would finally overcome the struggle of sin, who would finally destroy the curse, which affects everything. Part of the the curse was that in all of our work, in all of our life, we would never find true satisfaction. There would always be fawns and thistles. And in all our attempts to make life better, it would always fail outside of the promised one. We feel this, thorns and thistles. It's the restlessness and the tears as we sow and the brokenness and the fear and the stress and the anxiety. But Jesus, the promised one, has come to bring us the rest, the Noah of God for his people right now. And we keep sowing because of the promise in him. Sowing seed in faith because there's a harvest to come. We live this side of the promise, Jesus has come, but we live in the now and the not yet. There's a a great day coming. So when we sow, even though it seems unhopeful at times and hard and demoralising, we might not see much fruit. It's a call to persevere, even in continual difficulties, because we don't do it without hope and promise. Hebrews 12, 12, therefore lift your drooping knees, hands, and strengthen your weak knees. Don't give up. Don't wait for favourable circumstances. This is what Psalm 126 is teaching us to pray here. When we sow in tears, we should raise our minds to the harvest to come, to be sustained by the promise. 
little seeds if we stop sowing in our tears over friends, family, trials. What do we need fresh faith for today? Verse 6, he goes out weeping and bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. This is a, a wonderful verse that's adding to verse 5. It's kind of a Hebrew poetic tool to maximize the impact of what these, this psalm is singing about. It's so much more than a simply coming home here. Full hands, serious hope and promise to come. A harvest of many, many people getting saved. As we go out, even in the tears, we go bearing the seed. Which basically means with whatever you've got, whatever he's given us, our gifts, our personalities, our specific workplaces, our talents, our home, whatever he's given you, we need to go and sow it. God has made each of us unique. He's given you and I different gifts. We absolutely need to stop comparing to one another. Not as good as that person. I can't do that as well. Whatever it is, we have to stop and we have to go as we are sowing seed. And we do this together. It's not on our own. It's not an individual thing. Together. He has good works already prepared for you. That's what he says in Ephesians 2. You and I, there will, one day we'll see the beautiful blending of God's masterpiece in, over, in and over all of it. We take the seed that he's given us, wherever it's a, a lot or a little, and we sow it the gospel, as witnesses in our lives to those around us, pointing to the one who delivers completely. And we weep for real in the hard times. It's not unrealistic here. To, to suffer, it's hard. See, loved ones, suffer is hard. It's a real loss here. Even, even though we know the final ending, it still hurts. But the Lord will bless our sowing. And as we sing this song, Psalm 126, together, we too can be encouraged to keep sowing, even through the tears. The closing words here in verse 6 of assurance bring us right back to the songs of joy that open the psalm. It began with expressions of joy and wonder at the restoration from the exile or our salvation. And it concludes on the expectations of another miracle to take place. They're coming back together. They're finally home, singing songs of joy because of the plentiful harvest. People from every tribe and tongue reunited back together, united at his throne. God will wipe away not only every tear, but he'll also pour inconceivable joy and satisfaction into our hearts. That's coming. God has promised that he will deliver. And of this, we can be confident even in our waiting now. The psalm contains assurance to God's people that his word is true. The Lord will turn our tears into songs of joy. Though life might be hard and the results might be seemingly uncertain, he is with us and he will bless them, his people. The God who acted with love and care to his people all through life, the valley seasons in any age, will continue to be with them faithful. His very great promises are secure. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, No eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. This psalm is God's tool to stir our often distracted and weak affections away from that which will never, can never satisfy us towards what Jesus prayed along for most, which can, which will. 
Jesus longed for a global harvest and the prosperity of God's people because he knew that this would result in a worldwide praise of the Father. This was his deepest desire and it should be ours. It can be ours too. He wants to lead us into the greater happiness in God. Jesus prayed this psalm and it's about his great work. He prayed it in seek first the kingdom and all these other things will be given to you. Or let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. It's Jesus' prayer that in his painful work, full of tears as he suffered and died, he's going to win a global harvest across the earth to the praise of the Father. Not a partial one, but a full harvest, overflowing, hallelujah. Psalm 126 is how Jesus prayed. It's about him and his work, Jesus, the author and the perfecter. He prayed this through tears on his knees in the garden of Gethsemane. He cried it, he broke his heart and he gave up everything for it, knowing who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He came and he suffered and he bled and he died. He was forsaken and abandoned by God the Father so that we would never have to be. He was punished for a people it's for us, so that we would never be. Even through the tears and the pain, he did the work because he longed for that great day when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. When there will be a multitude from every tribe and tongue. It's going to be too great to count. Worshipping around the throne of God forever. It's a promise. Christ is risen from the grave and he will return in glory and all tears will end. This is what we're made for. And yet, often we live for so many other things that have no eternal importance. Jesus prayed this and he longed for it, the final glory of God, the, the, the very crown of creation. This is Jesus' deepest desire. And the joyful benefits for us in the glory of God that every tear will be wiped away, filled with joy. Every heart at home, resting, satisfied, love to bursting. Filled to overflowing with peace and joy. And as we pray this psalm, it shapes our distracted hearts to the desire of Jesus himself. Let's respond.